Global consumerism is a $40 trillion a year phenomenon, which makes it the largest, most predictable investment opportunity on the planet. Who are the prime beneficiaries of global consumption trends? Mega brands. Welcome to the Mega Brands podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Clark. In this podcast, we explore mega trends through the lens of a global investor with the ultimate goal of identifying the most relevant, most innovative brands that are best positioned to become what I call mega brands. These are the brands that are customer obsessed, have a corporate culture of innovation and self-disruption, create products and services that are in high demand, that exhibit strong brand love from customers, are serving a global opportunity and appeal to multiple demographic groups. What's the reward for a company that meets these criteria? More revenue, more cash flow, higher market share, and the potential to reach the trillion dollar club. Please enjoy our next episode of Mega Brands. Eric Clark is the portfolio manager for the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund in conjunction with his partners at AccuVest Global Advisors. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of AccuVest Global Advisors or Rational Funds. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of the Brands Fund or AccuVest may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Eric Clark with the next edition of the Mega Brands Podcast. It is uh, September 6th, right after Labor Day. Hope everybody had a great holiday, about a little after 9 a.m. Pacific time. And I'm really excited to talk to Adam Parker of Trivariate Research. Uh, as you know, I'm sure you've seen Adam across CNBC and a, bu- and a bunch of the different media outlets. Uh, I, re- I listened to, to his conversation with Barry Ritholtz on the Bloomberg Masters in, in Business podcast. That's one of my favorites every time they, they get updated. Uh, Adam's the former chief U.S. strategist at Morgan Stanley. That's where I got to know his work as well as the Director of Quantitative Research. So, you know, hey, hey, Adam, how are you? Hey, how are you? Thanks for I'm having okay. me. I'm uh, okay. I, uh, I, th- this is, I think I might title this podcast, So Many Questions, So Little Time. <laughs> <laughs> the market is just, I mean, I, I don't know about you. I, I'm a more of a micro guy. I'm the consumer, consumer spending trends, which brands are the most relevant I hate spending so much time thinking about macro um, and all the cross currents of macro. But, you know, the reality is there's a lot of stuff going on out there in the world. And, you know, so I'd love to pick your brain on some things. You know, if you want, just give us a quick overview of Trivariant, just so, you know, people that are listening to this, if they if they are really in need of that kind of product or service, they know that you are somebody, you know, your firm is somebody to talk to. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Yeah, so uh, my background is, uh, you know, I have a PhD in statistics, and I worked at big Wall Street firms. Um, first as an analyst, I, I did research on the semiconductor industry, and then writing strategy and quantitative research. So did that for 18 years, spent a few years on the buy side managing money, and, and came back to launch this boutique firm about 15, 16 months ago. And our clients are really in three buckets. One, are registered investment advisors, so folks who are you know, managing money for high net worth individuals and the like. The second bucket is corporates themselves. So CEOs and CFOs and investor relations folks at big public companies. 
And the third bucket is uh, hedge funds and asset managers, people who are institutional investors. And so our product is really, we try to focus in niches around industry deep dives, around risk management work, around advice about sizing and positions. Primarily focused on US equities. We do a lot of uh, idea generation, risk management. We sell data, we do a lot of custom services. Um, so it really depends. But I'd say for RIAs in particular, it's really around idea generation and, and context. You made an interesting comment already about macro and you know, quantitatively or mathematically, you're, you're actually right. You know, Macro information is explaining more of stock returns than ever. And even very idiosyncratic areas like biotech or software are now the returns are largely explained by macro factors. So it, it's become, you know, uh, it's by luck for me, but it's becoming increasingly relevant that people care about some of the stuff we do over the last couple of years. Yeah, it, it, it's it's literally you watch some of the trading actions sometimes and you're like, it, this, it doesn't matter. Maybe this is part of the ETF effect too. It doesn't matter what the micro fundamentals are. It's like if rates are rising and inflation is up, then you want to sell that basket and then you want to buy that basket. And, you know, some of the names in those baskets may or may not be the right ones, but it's just everything feels so just like a big basket trade. And, and that's, you know, that's frustrating, but it also offers some opportunity for people. A, you have to have a longer time horizon because in the short term, your good stuff gets sucked up with the bad stuff. But, you know, if you look, I guess the first question for me would be, you know, if you look at the markets and the price action today, I, I, at least I see nothing but bearishness. And, and I understand why. I mean, if you look at the technical, the price trends, would tell you we're in a bear market. The trends are, you know, we keep making lower highs and, you know, but, but in your view, are, are a lot of the knowns already baked into price? Cause that's, you know, everything that we all talk about. I always feel like, like my mom knows there's Ukraine problems and she feels the inflation and she hears the, the stuff about the fed. I mean, is there anything that's that's known that isn't baked into price let's start there and then we can move into some of the the real data i mean your mom sounds pretty smart um you know i, I you know not not everything is in the price uh look I, i'll back up and say for most of the last 10 12 years i've been personally fairly optimistic on u.s equities you know i don't usually do a ton of work around market commentary and making that market call because I, I think people have access to that and it's not always right. Uh, in fact, it's usually wrong. But but I, I think these are, you know, and I've learned, by the way, Eric, that you always sound dumber when you're bullish, right? You know, if you're bearish, you can always sound intelligent as you pick apart different arguments. And what about Taiwan? And what about this? And so you can create a long, you know, wall of worry. And so generally, I've been more simplistic about it. I think the, the reason I'm a little bit more cautious at the current moment is, um, you know, I know the estimates are way too high. The analyst estimates embedded in, in the 2023 numbers are way too high. Now, your point's important, which is I think a lot of people know that, right? And so maybe it's not, it's not the case that just because the numbers have to come lower, the market has to go lower. But, you know, I think when they're coming lower, the debate will be, are earnings going to actually decline in 2023 versus 2022? Or can they decline, you know, plateau, and, and maybe that's the opportunity. But right now, I think the estimates are, are way too high. Order of magnitude, the current bottom-up numbers are for $243 in earnings in 2023. Our top-down view is it's more like 215 is the right number. So the numbers are meaningfully too high. So that's one thing to think about. And then the second 
thing to think about is um, the Fed, right? And you kind of said, hey, it seems like the fundamentals aren't always mattering. It's something else. Well, you're right. For meaningful periods of time in the last two years, it's been perception about interest rates and so-called Fed fund futures that have been statistically significantly correlated to stock returns. And so, hey, what are people thinking about the Fed? And are they going to get more hawkish or dovish as the driving outcomes more than the actual reported results? So I think the challenge there is that the Fed seems pretty hawkish and quantitative tightening, you know, the balance sheet reduction is different than balance sheet expansion. And so when I think about things that can impact earnings and things that can impact the multiples, high level, they don't seem directionally positive right now. And I think that's where maybe, you know, the root of caution is. And so your question, like, is that all on the price? I don't think so, man. You know, it's always hard to know, but um, I think when the analysts get more, you know, analysts typically get collectively too bearish at the bottom. So I think the question is, okay, well, now we're the day after Labor Day, the analysts sort of show up at the office, sharpen the pencils, you know, pencils on the 2023 numbers. You could see some downward revisions here into October earnings, and we'll see if the price action follows. But I, I don't think the risk rewards you know, that positive right now with with the Fed and with you know the corporate earnings outlook. Okay. So you talked about 215. So let's assume it's 215. I mean, in the in the kind of environment that we're in, what do you think is an appropriate multiple for stocks for that? And I know it's always, you know, markets tend to either trade yeah. above the, the fair multiple or below the fair multiple, but. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, forward earnings data have existed since uh, 1978, right? The long-term average has been around 17 times. So, you know, I, I guess if you take a number like 4,000 on the S&P, right? I mean, as, as we're talking, we're somewhat close to that, right? And you say, okay, well, 215 is, is the right number, right? So then where do we trade? You know, we trade at um, something like, you know, 18 and a half times what I think is the right number, 215. If you take the current consensus numbers, it's more like 16 and a half times. So the actual estimates, accurate estimates, if I'm right, are a couple turns on the multiple alone. I don't like the argument, you know, and I don't want to get too negative here, but I don't like the argument that, you know, multiples could crater way down to historical drops because the constitution of companies now is so much better than for much of history. You have better balance sheets, you have faster growth, you have better profitability, less capital intensity, less you know manufacturing businesses. There's a lot of reasons why you could say multiples could trough out at average multiples this cycle as opposed to troughs from 30 or 40 years ago. And I'm probably more in that camp. So for your more academically minded listeners, people who are focused on Cape or Schiller PE or sort of a Grantham view of the world, I think it's probably too bearish. I don't think we're going to get uh, multiples that go that low. So yeah, I could see 17 times the long-term average being a reasonable multiple to pay for the accurate numbers. And you know, if as long as the numbers look like they're going to bottom out flattish to slightly up on earnings growth 23 versus 22, maybe the market can uh, do well. You know, as always. You have to about, think about things in the context of other asset classes that, you know, for the first time in my life, um, I've been buying over the last few months, the two-year yield. You know, I used to be able to ladder CDs and beat it, but now, okay, the risk reward is, is, is maybe not as good as it has been at other points in history for U.S. equities. And yet I get the free the three spot four uh, on the two-year yield. So I, I think there's a balance and, and, and I don't view myself as like in the bear den. 
but I also think that, you know, um, the risk award is not the same positive skew as it's been, you know, for much of the last decade. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's, that, that that's fair. I, I, uh, in one of my blog posts recently, I kind of looked back at, I think it was 1968 through 75 and, you know, average CPI was, was six and a half interest rates were around six. I mean, the market traded in a big, big range with huge drawdowns and huge oversold bounces. And in the end, the S&P was up like it annualized at 3%. It was just a big fat yawn with lots of volatility and probably a lot of uncertainty. (laughs) And I wonder if we, you know, we've had great returns over the last 12 years. We might be in for some subpar returns as a give back while we work through this inflation and all the other stuff. Yeah, I mean, look, I wish we could talk about inflation. I guess the way I, the long-term algorithm I've used for equities is something similar, right? I have something like three to 5% organic earnings growth. I get this incredible boost. I don't know if everyone knows this, but on average, you take, in the S&P 500, you take 30 companies out every year or 6% of the companies. The ones you take out stink. You add 30 that are good. And so there's this upward bias toward the earnings growth of the entire S&P because you're, you're constantly calling it by removing the bad companies and adding good ones. So you get another one, one and a half percent growth from that. And then you get, you know, a, a buyback plus the dividend. So a long-term total return algorithm of seven to nine percent for the S&P has been right. And, and, and so absence of nothing, you could say, OK, well, my long term view is going to be seven to nine percent. Now, given your point, we just had 27 percent last year. With, you know, obviously we're down a lot this year, but. I can see the argument being we're going to be a little bit below that, you know, whether it's 6% per annum or something like that it doesn't seem unreasonable to me for a, for a 10 year view of equities. The, I, I did, I saw a chart on Twitter. It's funny. Twitter can be like toxic as heck, but you can get such great information and great charts. If you're, if you're searching and this chart was great. It basically broke out the S and P 500, the, the 490, the, the PE is like 14, the Russell 2000 is like 11 and change, but the the S&P 100, the, the largest 100 companies were, you know, 25, 26 times. So, you know, the bulk of the market is still not incredibly expensive, except for the fact that maybe we have, it might be more expensive than we think if earnings actually are going to disappoint next year. So, uh, you know, but I, I, I don't, are you familiar with like, I love following certain hedge fund managers and Ricky Sandler is one from Eminence Capital. I, I, I have a lot of respect for, you know, some of them, I think love to just trump their own book and all that stuff. And he, he, yesterday he, he uh, re-engaged with Twitter after five years, after five months. And he said, equity market likely to continue to be choppy and sideways. And I think you fade both extremes, but a new sustained bull market is unlikely because Earnings growth is slowing and multiples have interest rate and Fed liquidity headwinds, you know, so so he doesn't see that that to me, that's a thoughtful, logical, hey, we're going to be in a trading range and just deal with it. (laughs) You know, we're so we're so used to having just trending bull markets and, you know, all these crazy meme stocks and all these great opportunities, you know, maybe it's just more boring. I, I don't know if you picked him for a specific reason. Um, or if it's just dumb luck, but one of the first, like where I worked on the buy side was at Eminence for Ricky sitting in the office next to him. So I don't know if you knew that or not when you mentioned it. If you, if you did, then okay, good good research. Um, and if you didn't, well, just perfect perfect luck. But um, you know, yeah, I, I do think that's a reasonable approach. And I think 
you know, um, for people who have the ability to persevere through volatility, they, it, it probably is good for investors. You alluded before toward maybe ETFs or passes or other things driving short-term performance and disconnecting from fundamentals. But if you have the ability, you know, whether permanent capital or, you know, allocators that believe in you, or you have the ability as an advisor that, you know, you're going to have assets that are sticky, you can make good judgments and, and wait for the fundamentals to, to pan out. And I think, you know, people with experience like the folks at Eminence and others are, are in that, are in that basket. I think what's harder is if you're a newer fund, you know, you really can't afford to have short-term volatility as you're building your business. You know, you either have to have higher turnover or, you know, change your strategy a lot in order to, you know, navigate the, the volatile times. Yeah, believe me, I hear I hear you like you're screaming on that comment because, you know, you have a lot of advisors go in and, oh, I love the consumer clients, love these names. And then, you know, the stock market goes down and the worst performing sector is consumer discretionary and comp services and tech, which is where most of the most iconic and relevant brands live. And then they say, well, what the heck? You're like, well, okay, things don't always go straight up. But anyway, let's get let's yeah. get back to the yeah. data. Let's talk about your data. I mean, do, do you tr and I've read. Thank you. Uh, Colin sent me over uh, a bunch of reports so I could kind of familiarize myself did, from a sentiment oh, and flows perspective. Is that part of the the overall process or is this just the data from individual companies and and things because obviously sentiment is important and the market seems to move so fast these days we get these wild swings and from uber bullish to uber bearish you know what is your if you're if you track a lot of flows and sentiment data what's that look like for you guys sure i mean we have uh you know i think the power of what we do is really in our database eric um, you know, that's really what we built that would be hard for your average person, institutional or retail to replicate. Um, you know, I mentioned before, I have a PhD in statistics. All of the work we do is code, like the people who work for me, they, their main skills, they can code in Python and SQL. All of the computation we do is on Microsoft Azure. So this is not the days of like uh, a Excel spreadsheet where I'm adding a couple numbers up or dividing a couple this is all kind of computationally heavy stuff. And so the database we've built is for the biggest 3,000 US equities. We download every day a number of pieces of information, several hundred actually, and we compute several hundred and they fall into buckets, including sentiment and positioning, but also accounting, valuation, uh, cash flow statement, income statement, balance sheet, et cetera. And so we have sort of this mosaic of taking signals from each one of those various buckets including your question around sentiment positioning. We have a crowding score where we look at change in level of volatility and liquidity and ownership. And there's a bunch of those kind of metrics. And that drives, you know, our forecast return and it kind of informs us about um, important things about the securities. So, you know, a lot of clients buy our crowding score. They like to see our, our, our proprietary assessment of that. But I think the real power is in the database. If you sat there and you're like, hey, I want to do what these guys do, you know, you probably would have, we buy several hundred thousand dollars of the data. We have a few programmers that, you know, ingest process and, and, and build uh, and update the database. It's a, you know, a large production uh, that runs every night. And then you obviously have to have the know-how and experience to put it together. So I think that's the barrier to entry that enables us to be valuable to, uh, you know, a financial advisor, financial advisor networks, and obviously hedge funds and big asset managers. So that, that's the point. And yeah, sure. You know, sentiment stuff, of course, is in there. Now, people who run live money off of our quant models or use that to inform their position sizing, they sometimes tamp down those sentiment indicators because they tend to be creating increased volatility, right? 
I think the one that probably, you know, people are most interested in is our crowding score, which again, we kind of rank stocks as least to most crowded based on a number of attributes, including high conviction ownership of uh, uh, what we think are a good group of bottom stock pickers, change and level of volatility and liquidity and other sentiment gauges. So yes, we track it a lot and I think it drives short-term performance a lot. Okay. Um, so, so let's get into the, the what you like, what, what your data says that, that is more interesting and less interesting. And you know, one of the reasons candidly that I wanted to, aside from my respect for you from knowing, you know, kind of reading your stuff over the years, um, is the, the, the fact that you right now, at least seem to be on the opposite side of my trade. And, and I, and I don't want, you know, I don't want bias, right? Oh. I want to, I want to have what a is trade. Well, I mean, I'm the consumer guy, right? Which, which if you look at my portfolio currently, I, I am, I am, I am much differently positioned towards consumer than I would normally be positioned because I'm also worried about overall consumer. I'm much more focused on the Lululemons and the Louis Vuittons of the world where people that aren't suffering from a lot of the inflation or in the very needs category of consumer like a Costco or something. And I'm kind of avoiding the middle, if you will. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I at least- well, last... I, I, don't, I don't know if that, I don't know what, if that's the opposite side. I mean, let's talk about that more. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I mean, in aggregate, maybe you're reacting to the fact that my head of sales Collins sent me some of our, probably our consumer note from, from a, a few weeks back where we t sort of, kind of call it the trivariate way we look at sort of available alpha and trading characteristics meaning is this a good time to pick stocks in the consumer sector or not and then secondly we look at um you know the macro landscape so what are sort of the consumer metrics that people look at whether it's jobs or wages or retail sales or credit card delinquencies or some of the major macro factors and then we couple that with quantitative signals some of the stuff we were just geeking out about right you know what's helping you predict return and and um, and then we look at the fundamentals, you know, profitability and revenue growth and the valuation, what people are paying for that. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I think that's all, um, you know, you know, very important to, um, you know, uh, our mosaic. And I, I, our our mosaic is really one that shows us. If I had to summarize it for your listeners and very succinctly, I'd say the main consumer discretionary buckets are things like hotels, restaurants, and leisure, uh, consumer services, textile, apparel, and luxury goods. You just mentioned a couple like, you know, Lululemon, um, leisure products, consumer durables and apparel, so Nike and those things, specialty retail. All of those categories over the last 20, 30 years, Eric, have grown between six and 8% per year on the revenue, right? The public companies have grown the revenue six to eight, if you look at the quarter that just ended, um, it it's all been somewhere between 20 and 30% growth. So um, what's happened is that these companies have massively over-earned their long-term trend. So my suspicion, Eric, is you'll see some mean reversion where the revenue growth will slow. Um, and I'd be worried about the businesses that are over-earning, whether they over-earn because of government in, injection of, uh, of helicopter money, uh, wealth they created through crypto and housing, 
or, or, or a strong job and wage market. It's a combination of things. But I think there's no question the revenue growth trends will slow and materially slow for a lot of the consumer discretionary areas. Uh, so that, that's my high level thought. And, and, and I'd, add, I'd add one or two things there, but interrupt me if you, um, I'm getting lathered up, but interrupt me if you have, uh, <laughs> if you want, I don't, <laughs> if I'm not hitting on your top. No, no, that. You want me to keep, I have, oh, because I, I wanted two other thoughts, which would be one thing that's kind of confusing and, you know, um, you know, you and I are the same sort of vintage. So we haven't had, you know, a lot of experience when, you know, nominal GDP has been this high, but real GDP is negative, right? So for those listening who aren't, you know, totally familiar, if my, if my nominal GDP is 2% and my inflation 3%, then I get a minus one, you know, uh, real GDP. And that minus one might be the same mathematically as 8% nominal and 9% inflation and minus one, right? Eight minus nine is the same thing as two minus three, but underneath that, earnings can look different. So I think people, some people, you know, felt emboldened or felt like the consumer results during the last quarter were pretty strong. And they thought, well, I thought earnings were going to be worse than they were. So maybe this is a set of data points that points toward consumer resiliency. And I don't really agree with that. I think what's different is that we haven't seen a lot of periods where nominal GDP is eight and, you know, inflation is nine. And so the nominal is massive. People are still selling a decent number of units. You mentioned LVMH. I mean, definitely you know, purses are down. Like some of the units aren't as strong as they have been. But I think that generally in the economy, you've seen a lot of unit sales. And so we're still seeing um, a relatively, you know, decent set of earnings from companies just through strong unit demand. I think the other point I would make is that, you know, even though we all feel like if you if you surveyed your average person who pays attention a little bit, I bet you they don't realize that, that the Fed didn't actually move interest rates till March. So what did we just evaluate? We evaluated earnings from April 1st through June 30th, reported from mid-July through early August. And it's just not the case that the impact of the Fed liftoff was fully felt during the earnings you just saw. I think it's it's lagged some, and you'll see some increased slowdown over the subsequent couple of quarters. So I, again, like I'm not, you know, uh, you know, trying to rain on your parade. I just think, and there will be some consumer areas that that are strong, but I do think that um, the estimates are probably way too high. And maybe people got a little too sanguine about, you know, inflation and maybe it's peaking and the earnings are okay. And, you know, all that stuff, as you just alluded to earlier, at sentiment positioning, the market went up in July because of sentiment positioning. The people anchored to a few of those data points and say, well, fundamentally, maybe it's better than I thought. But I think that's a little bit more, you know, art than science in terms of the reality of what's coming over the next six, nine months. Yeah, I mean, we, ha- we haven't even seen the effects of the Fed tightening going through the system and then you have the over-earning thing. So, so you know, our, our base case was, you know, you're going to see less revenue beats and the best companies you're going to see EPS beats because they have, a, they have a much better grasp of their business. They have a lot more levers to pull to, you know, from an efficiency perspective. And hopefully they have, you know, the good ones have pricing power. You know, it's like if you are a, if you're selling a product or service that people either have to have or absolutely love, and they're just willing to pay more, even if they're moaning and groaning about it, those are interesting brands. Everything else is going to suffer, probably. So unless it's cheap enough, <laughs> and or the trough yeah, think you're, happened, yeah. let's stay away. I, I, think your brand, I think your brand point is, is probably right in terms of it's correlated to pricing power. 
right? I mean, I think brands have it. I think the, 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 where it could break down or a challenge or, you know, are just things that everyone has to deal with. What about rising input costs? You know, what about the cost of underlying materials as one example? Another is what percentage of your labor force is U.S. versus non-U.S.? Because if you talk to CEOs out there, what they're mostly going to tell you is absenteeism, so people not showing up for work, and um, wage pressure is mostly a U.S. phenomenon. So guys are building stuff in factories and they have employees in Mexico or Vietnam or Poland. They're really seeing no absenteeism issues and not much wage pressure. Guys were building stuff in, in uh, you know, Tennessee or wherever, uh, you know, I don't know about North San Diego where you are because everyone's life is good. Like the sun, you know, the sun <laughs> shining. But, you know, but I'd say like in most places, people are, are, are not showing up to work at the rate they should. Their you know, union contract wages that, that public companies have, they have to pay more than that just to get people to show up. So, the, you know, the question will be the rising input cost of wage pressure offset the, the pricing power that some of these brands have. That's one thing. And then the second would be, like, how much was their pull forward demand, right? Like, stupid example, but microcosm for me is look at, like, Weber or Traeger, which is Ticker's Cook. And, like, what they basically got in the conference calls and told you is everyone who bought needed a girl just bought one. And like, we probably won't sell one for a year or two because we were all home for two years and everyone like upgraded their grill game. Right. So there's been some pull, silly example, but there's been some pull forward. Uh, I bet you anything people listening are saying, yeah, I bought a new trigger. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like basically there's been some pull forward demand. And so there's going to be a bit of a, you know, picture the snake thing that happens over the next couple of years too. So I think, you know, even for good brands, the question is, you know, pricing power. Like you mentioned Lulu, and I, you know, I don't want to go into an area where you know much more than me on on the fundamentals of the companies. But I'd say, like, look, one of the things we're tracking now is the inventory. Okay, and so there was a big inventory number out of Lulu, and so yeah. the analysts rushed to defend it because the comps are good. The question, you know, let's compare it to nineteen. Whatever. So I think another emerging issue to face from here to Christmas, you know, back to school for Christmas, is going to be, you know, what's the deal with inventory? Did we overproduce consumption? Do we have the right mixes? You know, do we have to take pricing uh, concessions? Because yeah, you could have pricing power, you know, but do you have it uh, when you produce too much or not? Or you know, and so all those kind of issues, I think, are, are going to be important for identifying winners from losers in that kind of discretionary uh, cohort between yeah. now and your end. Yeah, no, I've, I when I'm in my conversations with the you know the advisors that are in the fund. You know, it's like, you, you don't, this has been the most unbelievable environment for a retailer. First, we shut most of them down. And then we, you know, all the policies around the world weren't, you know, destroyed supply chains and inventory and shipping costs went through the roof and they had to manage through that. And then they had to order when they could rather than when they wanted to. And they had to order more than they needed because they were afraid of not having anything. And now they have too much inventory and they're going to be discounted. Like this has been the most unbelievable two and a half years for a business to manage through, you know, hopefully we're, we're, you know, in the seventh inning stretch of, of maybe normalizing this whole thing. But, you know, anyway, so let, let's talk about things you do like, you know, I, I, I won't steal your thunder. I've read some of the reports. I'm sure you've done other ones. What, what areas with this, with this current market where analysts maybe um, are a little more right-sized, what, what sectors and or industries do you, do you see some real opportunities in? No, thanks for that question. You know, obviously a guy like me loves the EFIS pitch. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I do think that healthcare 
is an area that could emerge, uh, you know, where um, you know, we've analyzed the last several market uh, upturns of 10% or more, and healthcare has never been one of the best two performing sectors in the recovery. In fact, it's tech and consumer discretionary have most frequently been the two that have done well. Um, so you've you know, been positioned in the right place a lot, I assume. Um, but you know, I like to think about whether healthcare could be maybe a new leader. Most cycles, you do get a bit of a different flavor of the leadership. And when I think about portfolio strategy and I look at the market, I'm, I'm noticing that, okay, well, if I look at defensive stuff, pharma has the same yield and is way cheaper than staples, maybe has better estimate achievability. Okay, what about among the crazy growth stuff? Well, biotech, I think, has better risk reward than software. So maybe if I want the gross exposure, I can buy a basket of mid-cap biotech that had some call off showing out something being safer effective, right? And then among services, like I personally think healthcare services have more pricing power than a lot of consumer services. It obviously depends on the exact company, but anyone who has a small business who deals with United Health will tell you they raise pricing, you know, 9% per year, right? So unless you go out of business, you're going to pay the 9% increase. So I think there's a lot of sort of portfolio strategy between select pharma, select biotech, and, and select healthcare services that can do better than, say, consumer services, staples, or, or software. And so when I'm building a, a, a long-only portfolio to beat the S&P, a lot of healthcare checks and risk reward boxes for me at this point, just given what's happened, given estimate achievability, and given valuation. Um, you know, I, I think on the flip side, um, you know, our, our most bullish calls, calls since we started the business, you know, 15 months ago, 16 months ago has been to recommend energy. And obviously energy has been a monster now performed a lot. It's lagged a bunch the last couple months here as there's been a bit of a fear about a demand recession impacting the oil price and some specter of excess capacity forming. But I, I know we talked earlier about like a 10 year algorithm for US equities looking like, you know, maybe it's seven to nine, maybe it's five, 6% per year as we think about earnings. I wouldn't be shocked if energy was up 15 to 20% per year for the next 10 years. I wouldn't be shocked at all because demand growth will remain relatively robust. Um, this idea that the terminal value is zero is very dismissive. People are um, you know, uh, demanding quite a bit of oil or energy for lots of things they do. I think only in the U.S. right now, 8% of new vehicle sales are, are uh, sorry, 16% of new vehicle sales are EV or hybrid, 8% of the installed base of vehicles are. So peak oil demand will probably be something like 10 years from now. So you still have a lot of oil consumption in front of us and you don't have a ton of capacity additions uh, you know, as, as likely. So I wouldn't be totally surprised to see you know, energy uh, act well over a, over a long period of time. And, um, and, and maybe it's a decent way to think about some inflation exposure in your asset allocation. Yeah. I'll take healthcare. I'll take healthcare and energy, I guess. There you go. Healthcare and energy for 500, Alex. Uh, <laughs> I mean, listen, I, I don't know if you listened to my uh, two weeks ago, I think it was my last podcast was a conversation with, with Paul Sankey from Sankey research on the energy side and it was, I mean, the, the dude is so knowledgeable. I mean, we joked, he's got to write a book. I mean, the stories that he has about all the things that happen in the energy patch and all the deals and all the, you know, the, you know, there's a lot, let's, let's put it this way, given something so geopolitical and uh, there's a lot of interesting stories that happen in that sector behind closed doors. 
but I, I, I actually, I am a believer that inflation is probably more sticky and that that'll help me turn to the next question I have for you. If you have any opinions sure. on this, this particular area, I just, it just feels like, you know, when I see companies keep raising prices literally to this day, as their input costs start to to roll over, they are going to get a little bit of a lift if they keep, you know, if you have a brand and you have the ability to keep your price high and your input costs go down, you're going to get a margin lift at some point down the road. And not every company has the ability. They're going to suffer a lot of demand destruction. So I kind of think inflation probably stays higher than than all of us would like for longer which implies you do want to have some of that, you know, kind of inflation protection in a variety of different ways. And I have I have Exxon and Chevron in there. And that's a very abnormal thing for a consumer guy. But we're spending a lot more of our time and our money, you know, with the essentials, energy being being one of those. So I have to have that as as part of the, the exposure. So so turning to that thesis, one, do you agree you think inflation might stay stickier longer than the 2% or so the, the, the Fed seems to want to anchor to? And two, the, the private equity guys have been on this, this train for two or three years. I would love to know if you have an opinion about private equity. And, you know, it's not the same old private equity as before. They, de they tend to be very high beta stocks. When the market goes down, they go down more. But a lot of what they have been doing is buying inflation protected assets. And they have, you know, just the top five PE names have about half a trillion dollars worth of dry powder. I'd love to know if you've done any work on that category within financial services in particular. Okay. Yeah. There was a lot in that question. There was a couple yeah. different things. So let me go first to the inflation point. Um, and, and look, Every large firm has hockey rinks full of people who, um, you know, memorize and watch everything that everyone in the Fed says. Okay. I worked with a guy who, when I was at Morgan Stanley, who had written papers with Bernanke. Okay. And he still was slightly negatively correlated with accurately making a Fed call. Okay. So I realized that if he can't do it, it's going to be a tough thing to do. Right. Because in my mind, like these guys will buy billions and billions of dollars of mortgage-backed securities when the housing market was on fire in every MSA in America. So I don't know what the heck these guys are looking at, okay? But what I do know is that the CPI is heavily influenced, the number one contributor is something called OER, owner's equivalent rent, okay? And owner's equivalent rent is gonna be high. Uh, I just did a conference last week out in, in the Hamptons and there was a bunch of real estate guys and I went to their panel, kind of guys who try to be humble and say they own 17 million square feet in Manhattan, like those kind of guys. And everywhere, uh, pricing is coming up between a half and 1% per month still. Why? Think about an ownership as a two by two grid. 90% of all mortgages in America are 30 year fixed. Okay. So borrowing costs are high and home prices are high. So if you're a new buyer, like, wait a minute, this isn't great. I either need borrowing costs to come down or I need home prices to come down because affordability is not great. So you just say, I'll rent for a year or two. So in this awkward way, you still have awkward pressure on rents, even as the economy slows, right? And that's because we're in this sort of hiatus between enough transactions in the ownership market to get pricing to come down. All right. So 
I think owner's equivalent rent, which is one third of the CPI, is going to remain elevated for some time. And in fact, recent as last week, and this is a collection of 15 or 20 hitters in the industry who own thousands of apartment units and other stuff, we haven't seen any slowdown in rent increases yet. So let's say we get our first month next month, Eric. I had 11th, 12th times like 1% plus 1, 12 times zero. It's going to take a long time for the, the rental portion of the CPI to slow. So if the Fed are going to react to a, like an elevated CPI, they're going to remain super hawkish. You know, and I suspect they will. Um, and I think the rent stuff will stay super elevated for longer than people think. Now, you know, what that means in practice, you know, I don't know. Obviously, what's in the price is that they're going to keep raising the front end and you'll get uh, a recession ultimately. And that's why the, we've had you know, this inverted yield curve uh, for a while now, right? You know, the two-year yield above the five years, above the 10-year. We've had that for a couple months already. So obviously, people think that the Fed will take it too far. My own personal view on this topic is that the Fed should communicate going forward the same way they did the last cycle. The last cycle, they said, hey, 2% is our target. We're going to run way below 2% for a long time, but we're just going to make you comfortable. Deflation's off the table, and yay for risk-taking, right? And I think if they could kind of come up with the right language to say, look, there's no way we can get the 2% CPI next year. We're going to be comfortable running well above 2% CPI, but we're just going to take the edge off inflation and kind of come down the right direction. I think they could, you know, maybe thread the needle with the verbiage better than they have, but I don't trust them because, you know, the, the CPI prints are going to be high and they're going to react to it. They just, they're in a box. So that's the first part of what you said. And the second Rephrase your, will you uh, remind me of the private equity just question? Just a view asked, of so private equity, you know, so, just a view of private equity uh, in general. So, you know, I think it obviously, you mean from the standpoint of, you know, you're, you're an advisor giving advice to one of your high net worth individuals about what they should do with their funds, or do you mean the public companies that are, you know, um, you know, you know, sort of the, the alternative asset managers, just make sure I don't go down the wrong rabbit hole. Yeah, I mean, you know, w w within, within my fund, I'll frame it this way, within the fund, there are a bunch of themes. You know, the, the big theme is consumption, B2B and B2C, but within that, there's a lot of little sub mega themes that are happening. And, you know, in our industry, the migration, taking some money from your stocks and taking some money from your bonds and moving it to alts, of all kinds is a clear thing, right? right? Okay. And and the beneficiary yeah. to that thing are the you know the people that are available to advisors mostly. Those are the Blackstones, the KKRs, Apollos, you know, through iCapital and a bunch of others. So I see this theme right. happening, and given the macro environment, it feels like it's even a better time for money to flow into those businesses, given what they invest in and how much dry powder they have because they love chaos. I mean, the, the, the people who win yeah. in chaos are the people who have cash to spend when nobody wants to. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hear the tenor of your question. Obviously, I've made some private equity investments in my own personal life over the last decade. So, um, you know, I, I think the question, you know, with my risk management hat on, because obviously a lot of what I do for a living is bespoke risk management services for hedge funds and long only. Et cetera. So, you know, I think the question is, are you investing in something that has a reduced correlation or a low correlation to other things you're in investing in? You know, and I think it really depends on which alternative you're in. Some private equity businesses have really just been levered long calls, right? Borrowing costs are coming down and they were providing you leverage. 
Some probably don't have books that are really marked that well, so they're still marking stuff up when it's probably down. So like anything else, I think there's volatility and variability. But, you know, if I were giving advice to a high net worth individual, I would recommend they do have some reasonably high alternative uh, alternatives exposure and uh, private equity certainly be one of those tools. It just depends, you know, I think exactly what of they're in and if they can think through is it early stage venture, is it late stage, is it crossover, is it, you know, correlated to the same thing. So if you told me, hey, Adam, all of my personal money is in public U.S. equities for the consumer, and then I've made uh, some adjustments now, and I took some of that out and I put them in consumer private equity businesses, I don't know if you're really diversifying your <laughs> right. portfolio that much. Yeah. So I think it's just, you know, it's always for like, you know, how do you get there from here is always part of the answer. But, you know, I'd say, you know, in the beginning, I mistrusted these businesses. If I look back like 10, 12 years ago, because when you're in school, you learn that the reason companies go public is they get, they need the capital to do something. You're going to build a widget. You need a factory. You're going to need sales. You need to hire people. Right. And so these companies went public for one reason, to make the people who started the companies rich, right? That's not like a great reason to go public. But over time, I think they become great companies in terms of like your point of having the dry powder to go in when things are dislocated and make, you know, uh, time investments well. And I think that's, you know, um, why they generated pretty solid returns, risk adjusted versus other asset classes. I, the part that I would say, if we look back 10 years from now and you were wrong, if we were wrong about saying good things in private equity, it would be because we didn't really understand that they were probably more of an interest rate sensitive levered long call than we thought when things are good. That's pop that's possible. And so since we're being recorded, we should absolutely know, note. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. I mean, listen, we only have a few more minutes. I, I could I could easily fire, you know, 15 more questions, but you know, for, so from your from your perspective, let's just let's just play the, you know. Uh, nobody knows the future. We're gonna we're gonna you know pontificate about you know twelve months from now. We're gonna look back and we kind of see you know talk to me about what you what's your data, what's your experience, what your hunch says about about equities and bond markets and and just you know is it is it a very defensive market and that's really the place to be or is there do we reach some level at which you think you know if the market got to x that would satisfy a lot of you know a lot of the price and the and the issues and that's when you probably want to get a lot more you know intrigued by asset prices or if the fed does yeah. x, whatever you know what, whatever you think uh, i don't love using price even though we're all guilty of it right certain things because you know, the price without a denominator, like some view of the interest rate environment or growth rate of the company or the earnings of the cash flow is always rough. And what I mean by that is I'm honest. There's all the time I like stocks less when they're down a lot than I did at higher prices. Anyone who can't admit that is ultimately going to not be a great money maker. It happens all the time. I love the stock at 20. It went to 15. I didn't like it that much. Is that stupid? No, it's not stupid because usually what made it go down is you know, something changed about the business or the trajectory is different or it's being perceived differently. And so you can fight that all you want, but good luck, right? So momentum, you know, can, can matter. And I don't have any pride. Like I just, I just want to make as much money as possible. So I would, I would encourage people to, you know, not, not anchor in some price, right? Um, I think what matters is the outlook. And I think the outlook for the next six months is going to deteriorate. 
you gave me the 12 month horizon. So I'll, I'll give you the um, wimpy double breaking putt, which is I think it's lower than higher. So kind of your point about low total return with some volatility if you stick through it. And um, I think the things that do better have above average estimate achievability. The energy numbers and the metals numbers are already lower for next year. The industrials are, are double digit high. So I like long energy and metals short industrials. I think if you want to get defensive, I like farm over staples. If you want growth, I like biotech over software. So I'm always trying to beat the index long only by creating portfolio strategy. It's mostly around estimate achievability. The worst parts of the market are where the estimates are too high and the stocks are expensive on those estimates that are too high. Because then you get that double whammy of the lower estimates and the lower multiple on top of it once it comes through. Well, there you go. The but, summary. You know, Focus yeah. on the companies with yeah. above, you know, with above average uh, estimate achievability. <laughs> I'll have to get back into the style factor of the, the the EPS and revenue revisions and all that stuff and beats the beat rates. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And I think that um, generally some of the healthcare businesses, energy, metals probably have above average estimate achievability, all else equal right now. Whereas, you know, some of the machinery and capital goods, discretionary staples uh, probably have the worst estimate achievability. Yeah. So I, I'm tiptoeing through the minefield of consumer brands and this. <laughs> I mean, some of the staples yeah. are more expensive than some of the growth stocks and they have a fraction of the growth. So they, they better be a high demand, you know, business where they can yeah. really manage. Yeah. I mean, look, the problem is I know that, right. And you know that it's back to like you know, your mom, your mom knows that. Right. So the question is like, you know, people own them just for like risk management purposes. Like look at Pepsi. Okay. Pepsi is a great brand. I mean, you know more about the brand than I do, but like it trades at 27 times forward earnings says poor free cash flow conversion has currency problems, has input cost problems. I don't know. And it just grew. It's definitely over earning its long-term earnings growth. So like, I, I don't think it's a good investment from here, but like, would I short it? No, because people own it because it's defensive with a good brand. It probably hangs in if the market's choppy. So there's a difference between being like dogmatic about it versus like, what would you do in practice? And I think, you know, some of the higher quality staples just they won't be good short ideas, even if they're expensive in, in an environment where, um, you know, generally estimates are too high. Because if Pepsi's numbers are, 5% too high. There's other stuff where the numbers are 15% too high. Yeah. Well, why would you short a staple when you can go short the profitless growth stocks when they go up? <laughs> Some of those names that you're like, man, it's 2000. It just feels like 2000. And a lot of those names are down 50, 60, 70, 80%. And it still yeah. feels like 2000. So. Um, yeah. I mean, some of the names, are, you know, just when, when rates are a one-way street, everything looks cheap. Right. And, and so now, there's more discipline required because, you know, um, you know, money isn't, um, you know, financial conditions have materially tightened and, and that matters. Listen, Adam Parker, Trivariate Research. Uh, the website is trivariateresearch.com. Uh, are you on social media? I can't remember if I found you on, uh, on, on Twitter or anything. Uh, <laughs> you, you did not. No, we, um, we, uh, we haven't, um, you know, done that, you know, right now we really only sell our content to um, institutions or advisors, professional investors. So we can sell it to RIAs or, or financial advisor networks, corporations or uh, institutions, but we don't sell it to individuals. Um, you know, I'd say we're a little bit more uh, quantitative, sort of nerdy. And, uh, and if you sell our content, we need a minimum asset requirement that uh, probably 
uh, negates 80% of the Twitterverse from being candidate. Uh, actually, 95% of the Twitterverse from being candidates. So, yeah. um, you know, we're kind of keeping it, keeping it for our paying clients and prospects. But I would love it if people reached out to our website and, and got a hold of us if they think they're interested in in our content. You know, we're really, we're, you know, we're experts in risk management and position sizing and industry deep dives and idea generation uh, and, you know, shareholder value and what, what makes companies, the stocks, you know, go up or down. And, and so that's why our clients are either the corporates themselves or asset managers of hedge funds or RIAs. So anyone who's interested in that kind of content can um, reach out and we'd love to work with them. Sounds like a plan. Well, Adam, thank you so much for your time. It's been really good to, to catch up and, uh, um, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure, uh, now, now I get to put in for the next year. We'll get to see what the next six months is, see if the estimates are just are crazy, which it sounds like that's a, you know, that's a pretty easy call. So, uh, you know, watch out for all the tiptoeing through the minefields for, for everybody. Take care be well. Thanks buddy. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Mega Brands, everybody. I'm your host, Eric Clark. For more information on this podcast and to learn more about the brand relevancy scoring system we use, be sure to check out the website at globalbrandsmatter.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the market newsletter and check out my latest thoughts on our favorite portfolio brands in the Dynamic Brands section. If you have any questions or want to learn more about the Dynamic Brands approach, send me a message on the contact tab. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a great day.